Hey guys, we just launched our latest resource titled What's for Breakfast. This book features two full weeks of unique breakfast ideas featuring real food only with over 20 original recipes and sourcing recommendations for everything, coffee, tea, flour, milk, you name it. And the best part is everything can be made from your stocked kitchen and pantry. That's right. We're giving you a master list of kitchen essentials to keep on hand. Learn how to cook nourishing meals for your family and take back the family breakfast table. And that was a word from our sponsors. Us. <laughs> go get the book. Go get yourself nourished. Elevate your morning breakfast meals and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good morning. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. On today's episode, we are going to be sitting down with Diana Rogers. Diana is a real food dietitian, a sustainability advocate, and the co-author and producer of both the book and documentary titled Sacred Cow. She's also the founder of the Global Food Justice Alliance and nonprofit advocating for a nutritious, sustainable, and equitable worldwide food system. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Right on. We're, we're super excited. We uh, Elizabeth and I actually watched Sacred Cow together. Yeah, pretty and, recently. Um, she always asks me to watch and read things that are going to be good for me because I want to be a supportive husband and know this kind of stuff. <laughs> and um, I felt like Man, for all the guys out there that maybe are like not on the real food train with their spouse. Right. Oh my gosh. It was awesome. I loved it. Thank Especially you. as a chef. There's there's just like a part of me that really enjoyed it. Also as like a Parks and Rec fan, there was like a low yeah, key. Yeah, Nick Godwin like, <laughs> was clutch there. Way to get him to do that because that'll bring the male the male uh, audience so, right in. So I'm really excited and, and super uh, pumped to have you on, Diana. And and but let's start at the beginning. Take me back to where it all started. Where'd you grow up? Well, I currently live in the Boston area, but I grew up on Eastern Long Island, um, about an hour and a half drive from New York City. And it's actually quite rural out there. And mm-hmm. I worked on organic farms throughout high school and college. Oh, no way. Um, but, uh, but even backing up further than that, I had undiagnosed celiac disease until I was 26. And so that's really Whoa. what got me interested in nutrition and yeah. figuring out uh kind of what was like going on with my health why i was really i i had learning disabilities in school i was really really underweight i mean basically i was malnourished everything just went straight through me because i my body was attacking itself every time it saw wheat and mm. my doctor at the time didn't know what was going on um and so it wasn't until I was 26 that i actually got diagnosed but i was suffering from it i think ever since I had my first Cheerio, basically. Wow. And, you know, I ended up studying art in college. And I think that was mostly because I had such problems reading that I would just sort of make a poster or diorama of what I thought the book was about in in English class. It was my definitely the class I struggled in the most. But I was like so good at faking it and so good at art that, you know, nobody really kind of addressed my reading disability. Wow. And so I actually made it all the way through high school without reading a book front to cover. Wow. And now I'm an author. So how ironic is that? And mm-hmm. nutritionist. Mm-hmm. But I've always been interested in being outside and how food is grown. So like I said, I worked on an organic farm in high school and college. And then when I met my 
my boyfriend in college, we had a little apartment together and we grew food in in our college little house. Uh, you know, we, we made some raised beds. We had worms going in the kitchen. <laughs> and it was just kind of like a fun thing. And it was mostly also because... We didn't really want to go home in the summers. We wanted to, like, stay living. Um, we we went to the University of Massachusetts, lived in the Amherst area. Mm-hmm. And there's not many jobs out there. And so we had a little kind of landscaping company that we ran together and, you know, basically just kind of, like, did whatever people asked us to do. That's cool. Oh my um, gosh. Were you helping people raise food or just like residential landscaping? It was like residential landscaping, walk your dog, paint your house, move your your furniture. We called it the indentured students. And I was actually never richer than when I had that business. (laughs) Um, It was like booming like crazy. And then we just kind of had to figure out like, do we want to be in the temp help student labor business for our life? Or do we want to maybe try other things? So Mm -hmm. We moved to Portland, Oregon, and uh, it was like the dot-com boom at that time. Mm -hmm. And so we immediately got jobs in tech. And I worked for an ad agency. He worked for a market research company. And it was miserable. Like, Mm. I didn't want to market something I didn't believe in. He didn't want to do market research that only benefited, like, Hewlett Packard and Microsoft. And it was really him that was like... I have to figure something else out. Mm-hmm. And so we would every weekend go for a bike ride or go for a hike somewhere. And there was all these CSA community farms out there. And he was like, that's it. I'm going to be a farmer. And so, you know, he did not have a farming background. I had much more of a farming background than he did, mm-hmm. actually. And we decided to get married, moved back to Massachusetts. He got his master's in soil science at the University of Massachusetts, where he was an English major undergrad. And we ended up moving, you know, once he graduated, we moved to a farm where, you know, he really felt like this whole idea of community supported agriculture, where we could like revitalize community land in a suburb of Boston was a great kind of marriage of, you know, educating people about the value of food and also, you know, doing something that we we both loved, like being yeah. outside and everything. Mm-hmm. So I was working in marketing still, but I switched over to, well, first NPR and then for WB, uh, for um, Whole Foods Market. Mm. Oh, okay. And so and one of my jobs was actually approving all the gluten-free, <laughs> like, brownies and pizzas and all that kind of stuff that were coming into Whole Foods. But then after we had our second kid, it was just too much to, like, have a corporate job mm. and be married to a farmer who was working every single hour there was daylight and even beyond that. Totally. And so I started working at the farm, running like all the front of the house stuff. So we had a 500 member CSA. We had a kitchen where we made sandwiches and soups and all that kind of stuff and cookies to sell. We rendered lard there. We were a raw milk pickup spot. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was really interesting for me. And I didn't really know much about like why all these people were coming in to like pick up butter and raw milk. Yeah. And so I, I started learning more about Weston A. Price and went to a conference mm. and decided to really dive into nutrition because I, even though I was gluten free at the time, I was still like on this blood sugar roller coaster and I didn't mm. understand why I was so hungry all the time. And I, I definitely felt like I had diabetes, even though like my mm. labs seemed normalish. Yeah. So I ended up going to Nutritional Therapy Association's program to become an NTP. And then I became a registered dietitian just because I felt like 
having that holistic degree was awesome and was like the foundation of my education. It was really becoming an RD that allowed me to take health insurance and get respect in the medical community and Mm -hmm. really allows me to do the work that I do today because I have that medical credential as a dietitian. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that I have to espouse um, ultra processed food in any way. Um, I still have uh, my philosophy that eating a, a real food diet, you know, much closer to what our ancestors, not just grandma, but like way, way back, yeah, ate, yeah. like what our bodies evolved eating, just like mm-hmm. any species. Humans have a species appropriate diet. And that is the philosophy that I carry on with me today in all of the work that I do. I, I wrote a couple of paleo type cookbooks mm-hmm. and became very good friends with Rob Wolf, who wrote The Paleo Solution and also has a huge interest in sustainability and recruited him to come on board with me to write the book Sacred Cow with me. Yeah. And he was really instrumental He's he's just really good at bouncing ideas off of. I mean, I was just mm. texting with him this morning. He really helped me kind of like organize my thoughts with Sacred Cow. And, you know, we really debated in the book, like, do we lead with ethics? Because that's really where this is coming from. This This kind of fear of meat is coming from people being uncomfortable about how food is produced and how livestock are raised but we we decided to really lead with nutrition because mm-hmm. it doesn't even matter if a food is sustainable if it's not a healthy food to eat, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And wow. so we led with nutrition and then followed that up with the environmental case for, you know, the benefits of cattle and also what would happen if we pull animals off the land and then talked about ethics and then what you can do, a diet plan and all of that. And halfway through writing the book, yet another vegan film came out talking about, you know, how if you feed your kids meat with breakfast, then you might as well just be giving them cigarettes. I mean, these films are so highly influential and so full of propaganda. So the film Sacred Cow was really born because I felt like it was the best way to reach young people. And also I wanted to give kind of high school science teachers some, some kind of counter to all of the stuff that these kids are watching. Yes. And so, you know, some of my biggest fans are high school science teachers that, you know, <laughs> needed something to show kids. And so, yeah. you know, my book can only reach, you know, the people that are really into it. It's a lot different than the film. It's much more mm-hmm. science-based and mm-hmm. uh, linear where the film really shows you regenerative mm-hmm. agriculture in action. So yeah. that's kind of a snapshot I, of, of everything. That's outstanding. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I, everything you just said is amazing. So I, I read the book and then I watched the documentary. And I have, and so we have another episode too where we kind of outline some of the broader themes in Sacred Cow, both the book and the documentary. And then we push people to go watch those. And um, a follower on Instagram listened to that episode. And then she, and she's in Canada and she got her daughter's public school science teacher to show the documentary in class because she had classmates that were like I don't eat eggs I don't eat meat like I don't need any of that and so it's so true like I'm it's funny that you say science teachers are some of your biggest fans because that was literally like this person said I need my daughter to hear this information but it can't necessarily come from me because I'm her mom Mm. so I'm going to talk to the science teacher who's very open and he's going to play the film and then they're going to watch it and they can kind of have that conversation together and I'm just like yes Mm. Because there are, there was, there seemed to be this 
huge rise of these like vegan films, um, What the Health or Game Changers, or there's a couple of them that really were convincing and still to this day are super convincing that we either need to eliminate um, animal source foods for our health or for the environment or because it's just dirty and bad. Um, and then I'm, I'm so encouraged by this, we call it the counter narrative that we're trying to play a role in to help re-educate people. Hey, no, some of that stuff was just bad science. Some of that stuff is bad propaganda, if we're going to be honest. And so I love that your book led into a documentary because that is a little bit more digestible. It is uh, more conducive for maybe a couple to sit down and watch that together versus like, hey, I read this long and extensive book here. Go read it too. Um, But the book definitely has a, a wonderful place too. So I love that few things that I was taking notes on while you were talking, because first and foremost, I feel like <laughs> you did an outstanding job going from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a few things. Uh, first off, curious growing up as a kid, like what was it like? Eat? Like so, you, so with your family growing up, like let's talk, let's say like ages of, you know, from earliest you can remember till, you know, middle school, what did family dinners look like? Were you cooking from scratch you know oh no my mother truly believed that anything science could do was superior superior to nature and that as an Mm -hmm. educated woman she was not going to be stuck in the kitchen cooking because that was Mm -hmm. what uneducated women did Mm. so she was sort of this weird and, and i think a lot of a lot of moms of that era were like this where Mm -hmm. she kind of felt like she was rejecting this idea of she was more of a feminist kind of and and really just felt that it was sort of beneath her to be yeah. to be stuck in the kitchen cooking and so our house was a lot of frozen dinners at summer uh, time. We were shipped off to summer camp. She was not going to stay home with us and, and do mom stuff. And so, you know, people, I don't know if you know who Shannon Hayes is, but she wrote a book called Radical Homemakers. And she really pushes back against all of those ideas. But but I really, I, I understand where that mentality comes from. She, totally. she just felt like she was a modern woman and didn't need to do yeah. all of those kind of what she felt were degrading tasks. I'm quite the opposite where I cook a lot from scratch and I Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time with my kids and, you know, it's just different kind of waves, I think, of parenting philosophy and feminism, really, in our culture. So another thing that's outstanding, I think it's so funny as we talk to guests and folks on here about what their kind of like upbringing food looked like, there is a very generational Mm -hmm. like adjustment where I think, I think it was your mom that we talked to that her generation it was there was a lot more home cooking there was you know Joyce also mm-hmm. and then there's like a, a, a um, revolution that kind of happens in the kitchen right mm-hmm. where convenience becomes the priority mm-hmm. where like you like you just said it right science kind oh, of we had one of the very the first kitchen. microwaves my, oh, I shoot. mean we ate hungry man dinners so I'm a little bit older than you guys so I'm a, I, I was born in 73 so my mom is a like, okay. boomer right and we had tin foil hungry man dinners mm. with like fried chicken and the brownie in the middle and we would <laughs> eat it in front of the television and like that was modern living according to her mm-hmm. and uh, she worked really long hours and we were kind of on our own 
the fold open TV trays. Yeah. Everybody yeah. can see them. Yeah. If you've seen them, you know what I'm talking about. They, they'd pull up to the couch right. and like everybody had their TV tray in front of their seat. And it was, but like don't knock all it because it'll all fall. They all falls down, right? Yeah. If you have a dog, they're pumped. But that was, that was, uh, that was all the rage. Uh, so celiac. So, so today, are you currently diagnosed with celiac? Yeah. So celiac disease is an autoimmune condition that always is with you. Um, it's the only autoimmune condition where we actually know what causes it. And so mm-hmm. as long as I adhere to a very strict gluten-free diet, I do not show any of the blood markers for having a reaction to gluten. My my kids have the gene, but it is not flipped on in them. They they can eat mm-hmm. wheat just fine right now, but they know to be on the lookout for, mm-hmm. you know, if their digestion goes south or if their health goes south, you know, because it's something that you can develop at any time. Sometimes pregnancy makes mm-hmm. that epigenetic mm-hmm. switch turn on. Um, mm-hmm. But it, traveling is a challenge for me because- totally especially eating breakfast, because a lot of times the eggs are cooked on the same griddle as the French toast and the pancakes, and that is enough to yeah. get me off, get me sick. Totally. A gluten reaction for me looks like, you know, anything from, and it really just depends on like my baseline. Am I already tired? Am I already kind of run down? Or if, am I feeling good, you know? So when I'm traveling, I'm already run down. I'm already kind of tired. I travel a ton, especially this year. I've been to, I think, like 10 different countries just this year. And, you know, different countries uh, have different levels of gluten-free friendliness to me. Like Ireland is like, I think, I just got back from Dublin two weeks ago. That is the most gluten-free friendly. I think it has the highest percentage of celiacs anywhere Mm, in the world. So it's just really easy to be gluten-free. But there's some other places, like when I was in Thailand a few years ago, that is a huge challenge for me because there's a massive Mm. language barrier. It's not always easy to find out what different ingredients went into things. Mm. Some of the different ingredients that they might put in the back of the kitchen might have wheat in them, but it might not be on the label or it might not be something Mm -hmm. that, you know, I can easily communicate to them. But a, but a gluten reaction will look anything from like full on norovirus for a week wow. where I can't work to brain fog for a few days and just kind of a GI uh, not fun situation to yeah. just brain fog, fuzziness. And I mean, in, in all times, there's definitely a huge neurological component to it where I am not sharp and can't mm-hmm. think very well. And I, th- I think, you know, it, it really impacted my school years. I was definitely average to, to below average um, student in, you know, up through college. Uh, yeah. When I went to grad school, I got straight A's on everything. And I, I never got below an A in, in, in graduate wow. school. But, but when I was younger, I, I definitely struggled a lot. Because your diet had switched, right? Yeah. That's just the power of food, which is incredible. And like, I was kind of the same way. I had, it wasn't celiac, but I had a pretty debilitating eating disorder. So I was very malnourished through high school, barely graduated, got like a super low score on my ACT, couldn't even get into really community college. And then in college and graduate school, I was like straight A's because I was like Mm. nourished and actually fed my body. So it's amazing how much... It's, I mean, it's, it's common sense, right? It's our fuel, but we don't put enough emphasis on it in our culture, or unfortunately, we're putting emphasis on the wrong things, which is what I want to talk about. Before, um, right, right before we do, though, I did want to note 
because I think it's so fascinating because what you said was it was undiagnosed and little tidbit here. I went to culinary school. So before I went to business school, I went to culinary school. And while in culinary school, we didn't talk about gluten-free. And that was a while ago, right? This isn't a recent. I, and I would have to imagine that if I went to culinary school today, yeah. that there would be an entire lab on food allergy, food allergies, for sure. like per, like per allergy. Like you'd probably be talking about dairy free, gluten free, soy free. Like there would be, there would be so much. Yeah. Now what we did do, because this was like the rise when I was in culinary school of like vegetarian options, mm -hmm. right? And this was like the rise of the portobello mushroom is what I always say, right? It was like... It's just a substitute. You just put a portobello mushroom and now you've got a cheeseburger. And it was like that was happening. And then we, we got like really into tofu back then. But that was yeah. that was the one thing I wanted to say is that it was just it's fascinating for me in the food industry on that side to have seen that and to hear you say, man, it just was it was undiagnosed. I don't I don't know that it was because... You, you know, you didn't recognize that something was wrong or something was off. Oh, no, I knew bad. something was wrong. It was that the doctors didn't know to screen for it. Yeah, it's new. Um, it's and I'm normal new. height. So like that's also I'm 5'5". I'm five five, so a lot of people with celiac are stunted or just visibly even much more sick than I was. I mean, I was low muscle tone and very, very, very thin. But thank God I had the height because a lot of times that's the one, that's the thing that can really tip someone off. But now they know to look for atypical signs. They know to look for anemia. And it's really interesting what you said about restaurants because when I was first diagnosed at 26, there was like two types of bread and they both were terrible. And when I went to a restaurant, I would, I would like... I couldn't go on like a busy Saturday night. I had to go on like a Tuesday when it was kind of quiet and I would sit the waiter down basically and make <laughs> it seem like I was going to have an anaphylactic shock and die if I had any <laughs> gluten at all. Yeah. The problem with today though is because there's so many people eating gluten-free, there, there are many restaurants that take it very seriously, but some restaurants don't. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. find it irritating and they'll say, is this an allergy or a preference? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if I say allergy and I say it in a really stern way, mm -hmm. then they'll take it seriously. And I might have a manager deliver my food on like a separate looking plate and everything. But I also think that there are some places that I go where they don't care because they hear it all the time and they're not taking it seriously. And I will get, I have much higher chance of getting sick today as a celiac because of chefs not caring than mm. I did many years back when I was more careful and they took it more seriously. Mm. And when I was a dietitian, I had the same experience too. So I did the program, let's see, about 15 years ago. Uh, I was in my 30s, like early 30s. And we did talk about how it's okay to go vegan or vegetarian and how you need to respect dietary choices of your of your nutrition patients. But something like a Whole30 or Paleo was cutting out complete food groups and was orthorexia, definitely not okay. Mm. Over obsession with healthy eating, mm -hmm. which I just find so interesting because it still is the case today where it is actually even more prevalent among dietitians where I get pushed back all food in moderation, no food should be vilified. And it kind of goes along with the health at every size messaging that we have out there. And 
it can be really destructive. And I've gotten, actually, I got in a, in a pretty big fight with a dietitian from Purdue <laughs> who was saying, you know, there's no such thing as a food addiction and we should never restrict anything. And anyone who restricts carbs is crazy, all this stuff. And there was an NFL player who plays for the Bengals mm. who uh, is from the Cincinnati area. Funny. Who reached out to me and, you know, he said, I saw that exchange I agreed with you. I went to your website. I love everything you're saying. And I noticed that you have this nonprofit, which we can talk about later. But yeah, I want to get involved and I want to help you. No way. And so thank you, Marcus Bailey, for um, reaching out to me. That's incredible. We're going to be partnering on getting some healthy meat to kids in the Cincinnati area. Are you going to be coming to Cincinnati then? Uh, I might be, yeah. Ooh, and maybe maybe you guys exciting. can help me with the coordination of this of these donations because oh, yeah. uh, it's really important to Marcus that we that we get this food to Cincinnati kids. And so yes. mm. I'm gonna be working with some grass fed meat companies, getting healthy shelf stable snacks to kids in the Cincinnati area. Wow, well, that's, that's incredible! Such a crazy. Like, I know that's literally our hometown. We literally like, live in Cincinnati. That's yeah. wild. That's, to that's me. awesome. So you you mentioned really quick this like food for every size or something. I butchered that but health at every size and you know all food in moderation yes and i see this and this is where it also bothers me too it's something i've talked about a lot um this was kind of the pitch i was given in my eating disorder treatment facility like hey you have an eating disorder you have binge purge tendencies or restrictive tendencies or whatever you just need to get to a point where you're comfortable eating anything at all and you always have to finish your plate that's also not healthy. That is not the opposite of having an eating disorder. It's just like, oh, any food is nourishing to me. What yeah. I craved and what I eventually found through the Weston A. Price Foundation was a solid understanding of how food works in my body, which foods are nourishing, and food freedom through the education of, hey, dairy is a beautiful food when we don't mess it up by hyper-processing it. Meat is a beautifully produced food when we honor the animal's life, um, or if we're choosing the right meats from the right places. Uh, same thing with like wheat like when we eat wheat in our family because we don't have celiac but we try to ferment it we do sourdoughs we do things like that so it's it's that food messaging that's way more beneficial to yeah. us and families like us than hey it's okay to feed your kids the pop tarts because you know calories in calories out or yeah. they're going to be okay they're going to burn it off it's like no that leads to disordered eating because then it not only messes us up biochemistry wise but it puts us on a crazy uh, sugar crash and we we don't have a good grounding for a connection to our food as nourishment. It just becomes flavor, entertainment, um, something I like to do. And so it's that breakdown of communication that I think I'm vehemently opposed to the, the messaging that all foods are fine all the time. I think there's a place for food freedom, but it needs to be in the context of, hey, like what's nourishing to our body how is this serving us how who's being impacted um who are the end producers who are being touched by our cheap food choices so oh i completely agree with you and we could do a whole podcast with that on that i did um a podcast actually i just recorded yesterday with michelle hearn who's another dietitian also had um an eating disorder and also healed herself with Mm. real food yeah i mean i i do not think that people who are overweight and obese are bad people right i just think that in our modern food environment when we're presented with you know a grocery store full of foods that can trigger overeating and binge eating 
some level of orthorexia is required in order to maintain optimal health. It just mm. is. And we know that, you know, having extra body fat will make you more predisposed to ill health effects. We know that too. Mm -hmm. It's not saying that, you know, it's their fault. I think it's the food environment's fault. Yes. And I think it's an education fault. And I think it's the fault of dietitians and the USDA Mm. for pushing a diet that is not biologically appropriate for humans on us. Yes. You know, if we just had more education around why the food on the perimeter of the grocery store, why the more perishable, the better, you know, real unprocessed food. I mean, Brazil's dietary guidelines are so much more evolved than the U.S. dietary guidelines. They talk about how to eat food, you know, uh, prepared at home, to be very skeptical of food marketing messages, mm. to teach others how to cook. And to, you know, eat it as less processed as better, that is a great start. And that's the type of messaging that we need, not all things in moderation, because moderation has been proven to be, you know, put the blame on the human. If you Mm -hmm. can't moderate, you're bad. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you would never ask an alcoholic how many drinks is moderate. Mm -hmm. And it turns out when when they have studied moderation in humans with food, they found that, you know, the more you like something, the more you think is a moderate amount, right? So the Mm. more cookies or the more you like pizza, the more pizza is considered a moderate amount and everyone judges themselves, their own consumption as better than moderate. Mm. Uh, But moderate doesn't have any true meaning. And so, you know, moderate pizza to me might mean never (laughs) because I'm celiac or, or maybe, you know, in my kids, uh, life, I've got two active teenagers, moderate pizza might mean once or twice uh, a week, they could have a slice of pizza. But I mean, this is completely based on, you know, what is the current health status of that person and what, what nutrients are they void of? What do they need? What's their body fat composition? What, what foods trigger them to binge eat? Pizza is definitely, I mean, I cannot have gluten-free pizza in my house because yeah. I will overeat it. And so everyone just has to identify like what their food triggers are and what they need best for their body. But starting in the sort of the zip code of an ancestral type diet that is based on um, animal source foods and unprocessed vegetables and, and other plants in some kind of combination and strongly avoiding ultra processed foods is definitely the best place to start. Yeah, because it's so telling too. like the things I used to binge on as a bulimic were the highly processed, highly palatable foods. I, I knew one friend who said she used to binge on carrots, but that's like the most out of the box eating disorder treatment. It's or eating disorder behavior. It is the hyper, like I just said, hyper palatable um, they're not quite satiate. They're not satiating at all. Like I was so low in my protein intake. I was, I was basically just living off of carbs when I was in that state. And so, yeah, you really have to make that distinction because uh, it doesn't serve us well to just um, say, Oh, it's okay. Our kids will be fine because our kids are not fine. And I think that's where my heart really breaks for families who are clinging to these messages. There are some large accounts on social media that are like glyphosate's fine and sugars are fine and vegetable oils are fine. And anyone who says they're not is, is touting this thing that's unattainable for everyone. And it, it, again, it's like, there's more nuance there. And mm. I know this could be a whole, a whole separate conversation. I love you just recorded with someone who has a similar story because it's so important to me. And 
uh, took yeah. many others. So. Yeah, I have just to mention one more thing and then we can talk about me. But I, I yeah. do have a very controversial post that I uh, put up on Rob's website. I think it's on Rob's website. Maybe it's on mine, Sustainable Dish. Uh, it's not your birthday. Mm. And um, it basically came from me being at my uh, daughter's softball practice. Uh, we were at a doubleheader on a Saturday, 11 a.m., in between games, and out come the cupcakes and brownies and lollipops and everything. And I'm like, whose birthday is it? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, there's nothing wrong with food celebrations, Thanksgiving, birthdays, like, fine. Totally. But it doesn't need to be normalized in kid culture, especially kid sport culture. Mm-hmm. These girls are not being served right before lunch by eating uh, high sugar snacks in order to keep up with their day. And it's the moms and the girls that are pushing it on each other. And it needs to stop. And I got so much hate and so much pushback for that. And it just blows my mind. What was the pushback specifically? What were they upset about? Oh, from other moms telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about, that I'm, you know, going to cause cause eating disorders, that no kid should res- be restricting, that restricting causes more cravings, all these things. And I'm like, mm. look at my kids. They're fine. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly athletic. And they know that those are special occasion foods and we don't eat them before sports games because it it impacts their performance. Yeah. It's wild to me that having appropriate boundaries around our food and having a conversation about that is controversial. How could it be that we're talking about a performance of a child's metabolic system and then we want to throw a bunch of sugar and uh, processed carbs on it? And we want to have a boundary there that seems appropriate, but then people get upset. And it's it's almost like a moral, something flares up in them. They're just like, you can't tell me. It's the same thing going on with meat today. We can't even have a conversation about eating meat, what appropriate protein levels are, bioavailability, just like basic science. We can't have a conversation about Mm -hmm. that because it's wrong to kill beautiful animals and being Mm -hmm. a vegan is morally superior based on someone's feelings and not based on like real science. So in that vein, and Joey, I know you have a comment, but because you just said that, I listened to Yoga Girls podcast. Did you listen to this? I didn't listen to it, but it was forwarded to me. Oh, it's so good. This is what I'll say really quick. She was incredibly vulnerable. She's got like 2 million followers on Instagram and a massive following elsewhere and a pretty big podcast is from what I can assume. It was my first episode. She she paints the mentality, the vegan mentality so clearly. And she literally says things like, I would I would have told you that if you would have told me to eat an egg or or a piece of meat to F off or get out of here, like that's in, that's gross. That's disgusting. I would never do that because I felt like I was so much um, above that kind of thing. And then she realized after her own health events that um, her consuming the highly processed faux meats was not sustainable and that her I believe it's her cousin who is like raising animals in a on a regenerative farm and like milking a dairy cow every day she her whole paradigm was flipped and you know what she she points to your book and your documentary for flipping that and I was just like what a cool way to to have this very public vegan she said it was her identity 
And I think that's so common. It becomes people's identity. And she she was really vulnerable in saying, hey, I had to wrestle with this for like a year on, hey, I, I'm not that person anymore. And I don't believe those things anymore. And hey, I was actually wrong about the science. And so if, if anyone's like, I can't understand how you would get there, she is I'm, she's a very brave moment because I'm sure she's getting hate for that. But I listened to that entire podcast and I was blown away by her vulnerability. So I think that's cool. A vegan changing her mind when it's so There's been a few that have come to me um, who I'm friends with now. Uh, Yovana uh, came to me. She was a vegan and now she uh, just had a beautiful baby. And Mm. and she she came to me asking questions. And um, so did Jules Horn. Jules uh, is a very, very famous uh, German model here in America. Uh, Came to me wanting to learn more about meat and went from vegan to meat eating and um, is now a very good friend. That's awesome. That's cool. I think even just to tie a bow on the desserts after soccer games or baseball games or whatever. In between, really. I have to to imagine that most human, most logical people would recognize that that food is fuel for your body. Mm -hmm. And if they were to sit down and make their own kind of conclusions about what's best for kind of like sports performance or growing up being healthy. I mean, they're they're all going to say, yeah, cupcakes probably aren't the most healthy thing for us to eat right now. There's just something that people don't like being told what to do that they're immediately going to stand their ground as if it's their inherent, like their right to just do whatever they want when, when deep down, they know they're wrong. Like that, right. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I think that it's so normalized Mm. that you know, you get to have a food reward if you did anything, mm. you know? Okay. And yeah. this was actually something that I uh, I battled with uh, my now ex-husband a lot with because when he was a kid, if he made a soccer goal, he got to, his parents would take him out for Chinese food. Mm. And he associates hot and sour soup with <laughs> like warm and fuzzy, my parents love me, right? Yeah, uh. sure. But most parents, it's ice cream. Yeah. You know, for a soccer goal or something like that. And a lot of moms will associate baking at home with bonding with their kids. Mm. So they say, well, that is this important bonding time for me. Right. And I just challenge them. I mean, I so my my first degree was in art. I was an art teacher. So I'm like, why not? painting why not mm-hmm. making christmas cards you know from from scratch like there are so many other fun activities you can do inside at the kitchen table that don't involve making pe- people have that warm and fuzzy feeling associated with cookies and cupcakes mm-hmm. and you know also when you bake you have 24 of them right like that's why like if you're going to eat a cupcake like go to the store buy a cupcake eat it and be done with it you know mm-hmm. like you don't need 24 of them in your house uh, and and people also think that because somehow they made it in their house it's not an ultra processed junk food because it's homemade mm-hmm. that's ridiculous like you're still using you know whether it's from a Duncan Hines mix or you made it like from scratch with your own sugar that you poured in the bowl and your own flour you poured in the bowl that's still garbage food. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it's better. It's still bad mm-hmm. or, or, or bad for you. It, it doesn't mean that it's not tasty and it, you know, having totally. it once in a while is whatever, going to wreck your health. But, you know, anyway, so th- there is this whole 
mom, don't Mm. mess with me culture. I associate baking with bonding with my mom and um, Mm. it's how I'm going to bond with my kids and how dare you question my parenting. Mm. Um, So when you guys have kids who are middle school age and you're going to these soccer and softball and and all these games, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Because I I have a feeling you're not quite there yet, but um, Uh, when you are so we have an 11 year old she's in the sixth grade but i kind okay. of avoid i kind of avoid organized sports and those kinds of things for that very reason uh yeah i mean it's really hard it's really hard she did do, she did do summer camp though she did do summer camp and it was a very telling experience yeah. we won't get into that yeah um i will say so I, if i remember correctly you did a post on that this whole mommy cupcake culture a while ago and yeah the one it's not it. your birthday that's yeah the one. oh that is the same one. Yep. okay i remember seeing it on social i think yeah but i think back in the day if i'm going to make an assumption before we had highly um processed versions of this in the grocery store that's pretty much the only time we were baking or we were consuming baked goods was because we had made them ourselves. I'm going to assume there was a period of time where that was true. And so if we were doing that, then it was like, hey, uh, once a month, once every three months, not three times a week. So I think the acceleration of, hey, we're getting these foods all the time everywhere. Plus now moms think in their head, this is a fun activity, which it's never fun. It's not fun. You know, it's like make scrambled eggs have your kid crack the egg still but make it into scrambled eggs um they can still like they just care about cracking the egg anyways they don't care about they throw flour everywhere yeah i i just think that's a great point but i also understand the nostalgia of it but people need to recognize hey our our intake of those types of foods has exponentially increased we're not dealing with like your grandma's dietary um balance at all totally totally different game so totally yeah, let's move into some of this protein discussion because sure. um, this is a lot of what you talk about in your book and in your documentary and um, a couple interviews you've done. I just know you really cover this well, but I always hear the two things. One, people say we don't need as much protein as you think we do, and which to me, I'm like, I feel terrible. I saw a post the other day was, that was suggesting like 30 grams of protein a day or something, super low for males. And and two, that plant source protein and animal source protein are equivalent. So walk us through those two points. Yeah, I mean, just a few days ago, Walter Willett had a post, uh, had, had an article in the Washington Post about how um, it's just fine to be plant-based and 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight is all the protein you need or um, 10% of your overall calories, which is abysmally low. But this, you know, goes in line very much with his narrative that he's Mm -hmm. been espousing for a long time. So, and he is like Mr. Dietary Guidelines, Walter Mm. Willett. He is a professor at Harvard. I actually interviewed him for the film and got him saying, farmers have known for thousands of years that if you want to fatten up an animal, you feed them lots of grain and restrict their movement. And humans are the same. He actually said that in my film. That is what's going on. And Mm -hmm. he is one of the reasons that's going on. Yeah. So the protein guidelines, RDA for protein is the absolute minimum that is required in healthy males when they did these studies way back at practically the turn of the century Mm. of the 1900s, not of 2000s. And it's very weak, shaky science to begin with, these nitrogen balance studies that that they used in order to figure out the protein minimum thresholds. And it's just 
wrong. I think the minimum, the, the, the target should be double the RDA, 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which ends up being, you know, looking more like around 100 grams of protein for women and more than that for men. Mm. And in my nutrition practice, no one is even close. You know, they think they have an egg with breakfast and that's a high protein breakfast. And people aren't realizing that an egg is about six grams of protein. That's wow. it. Mm. So one egg, think about how many eggs you would need to eat to even reach 30 grams of protein, which would be not even a third of your daily requirement of protein, according to the 1.6 grams or, or even the 0.8 grams, uh, to be honest. So in addition to our protein, total protein requirement being too low, plant-based proteins are not equivalent to animal source proteins and they need to consider bioavailability on the label when they're looking Mm -hmm. at plant-based proteins because beans and rice are not the same as steak as far as protein or as far as nutrient density. So, you know, steak is more than protein. It has nutrients that are really hard to get or impossible to get from plants. And so not only is the protein, it's, it's satiating it's low in calories for the amount of protein you get. So you can get 30 grams of protein from about 180 calories of steak, about 120 calories of fish, or 750 calories worth of beans and rice. Oh my goodness. So we've got, we've got a big problem with um, obesity in the US. So telling people if they you know can't afford a grass-fed steak, they should just eat beans and rice, or that you know beans and rice are a suitable equivalent to eating a steak is irresponsible and actually unethical to mm-hmm. to be giving that advice because it's wrong. So you know we really need to be looking at how do we get the most amount of nutrition and the most satiety into someone for the least amount of calories. Mm-hmm. People you know outside of metabolic studies, outside of metabolic words in the wild eat to satiety. They eat until they're full and then they usually stop eating unless they're eating Pringles and then you just eat the whole sleeve of Pringles because (laughs) that's just what those people at the Pringles uh, plant want you to do because they they have very smart food scientists making sure you can't eat just one, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, generally people stop eating when they're full, right? The best way to feel full is to eat a high protein diet. Protein plus also fiber, helps you Mm -hmm. feel full too. So the combination of protein plus fiber. So the best way we can get the least amount of calories into people and get them the most nutrition and the most satiety is through a high animal source protein diet. That makes sense. Just thinking of something, one of my favorite posts that I've done was, it was like, eat like it's 1859 before pasteurization, before mass manufacturing of food, before kind of globalization of our food system. Because if you think about what we had access to, our protein would have had to come from animal sources. It doesn't have to always be you have to slaughter the pig, right? You can get a protein from eggs, raw milk. There's a little bit of protein in there. Uh, Saying that we going forward need to eliminate animal source foods completely ignores the past you know, however long we could argue humans have been in existence because we've been consuming these foods since the beginning of time, essentially. And so it's, it's so confusing to me how we have somehow forgotten that there's this thing called the food industry and this thing called the industrial revolution and this thing called um, marketing in food. And 
it's those reasons. I always say like the most dietary confusion comes when you are separated from your food. It's because we live in a society that is so separated from our food. Most of us have never walked on a farm. Most of us don't fully understand like the processing that your milk in the grocery store goes through. Most of us don't understand the realities that we can't grow plants without animal inputs and we can't raise animals without plants. It's a symbiotic system. And I'm so thankful for the people that are like really um, broadcasting that message now. Um, but it's we still have so much work to do in this education because it feels like a dogma. It feels like a religion, this anti-meat situation. And I know, especially for people like us, the young parents who are raising the next generation, they're on a slippery slope. And there are people who are eliminating animal source foods, thinking they can get all their protein from plants, and then they're raising their kids this way. Um, what do we know about raising growing human beings without animal source foods? Well, what we know, and, and this really became uh, one of the main themes at the Dublin conference I just got back from. So it's mm -hmm. called uh, the Societal Role of Meat. It was an international academic conference. But basically, not only have we been eating meat for three and a half million years, but, you know, a lot of vegans might argue, well, there's lots of things that hunter-gatherers did, like beat their wives and rape women, you know, or like, like that doesn't mean that we need to do that now, right? Um, but the thing is, is we evolved because we ate meat. We didn't evolve to eat meat. We evolved because we ate meat. It actually fundamentally changed our machinery mm. in our bodies so that we are actually dependent on the nutrients in meat for proper cognitive growth. Mm. So our brains require DHA, which is you can't get that from plants. We require large amounts of B12, which is impossible. You cannot get that from algae. You can't, it is impossible to get B12 from plants. And we know that taking supplements are not the same as actually eating the real food. They're not regulated by the FDA. The absorption of individual nutrients for, in the supplement form is not the same as eating them in the real form. So we have to be eating animal source foods. And especially when we look at at-risk children, who you know need a leg up in life, who mm -hmm. need to compete intellectually with kids who have more privilege, we have to be giving them animal source food. So that's why I'm you know, really, really ticked off about Meatless Mondays and Vegan Fridays taking over the New York City public schools because 70% mm. of those kids are either low income or homeless. But also what we know is when kids get you know, they've done studies, an egg a day when they're infants or just a little bit more meat through their school, like this one study in Kenya. We know that these kids go on to have better test scores, have better behavior and perform better physically. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for especially for kids in low and middle income countries, having access to animal source foods is essential, but that's not limited to those countries. Iron deficiency is the most prevalent nutrient deficiency, even in America. You know, it's up to one in two kids is iron deficient in America. And there's no way you could get enough spinach. I mean, you would need like 10 bowls of spinach to get the RDA of iron, uh, which you can get very easily through animal source foods. So denying children access to animal source foods is completely unethical.
Mm. And what about for pregnant and nursing women? Because they might say, okay, for me, I can be vegan, but for my kid, maybe I'll feed them an egg. Yeah. One in three women of childbearing age in the U.S. is iron deficient, and one in two in the U.K. is iron deficient. Mm. And so, you know, when you keep hearing, oh, but we're eating too much meat, that's actually not true at all. Our red meat intake has gone down since 1970. We're eating less than two ounces of beef per person per day in the U.S. Our intake of chicken has gone up, but chicken has less iron than meat. It's less nutrient dense overall than red meat is. And our intake of ultra processed foods has never been higher. So we need to really, you know, when we're talking about what are we eating too much of, it is definitely ultra processed foods. That's the big villain here. It's this curse of plenty and you can still be overweight yet malnourished at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, like, so when I think about a healthy diet for a pregnant or nursing mother, I, I go to write what's an A price and I'm like, okay, beautiful milk and egg yolks and getting all of those, like you just said, B12 and DHA, you can't get that from plants. Um, so the babies need that for brain proper brain development, right? So it's concerning to me that we've got a population of young women specifically who are being sold this veganism is the way towards better health and also a healthier environment and they are we're now birthing an entire generation who we don't really even fully understand the repercussions and so that's one of the biggest things for us is like we want to get whole families on board we want to help reshape children's education we want to get them back to the farm at least understand where your food comes from or like we're a hunting family you don't have to live on acreage we live in the suburbs but we have a connection to where our food comes from because um we we just live that lifestyle so thank you for painting that so clearly for us i do kind of want to get into you said you've traveled to like 10 or 11 countries this year what is the political landscape kind of globally looking like on this whole meat should we be consuming meat or not it's looking pretty abysmal um just the the too long didn't read version of of uh, of the answer to that question um (laughs) i leave actually next week at this time i will be presenting at cop 27 which is the un climate change conference in sharm el-sheikh egypt And, you know, what's going on right now is that there is all kinds of crazy policy aimed at reducing carbon emissions. Everyone wants to reduce emissions. Everyone wants to reduce emissions. And they're all attacking the livestock sector as the number one contributor. This is completely based on a misinterpretation of what is actually going on. And the dialogue is largely being driven by the plant-based food industry who have a lot of profit to be made in ultra-processed plant source foods that quote unquote have lower emissions, but they're grown in incredibly destructive ways, uh, you know, using lots of chemicals and tilling and they're not nutritionally equivalent. They have their own, like I said, environmental issues. They're not a no death or no harm solution for the ethical dilemma. And they're also a real food sovereignty issue, right? So Mm -hmm. in many parts of the world, people don't have access to a CVS where they can go get their iron tablets and all their supplements that they need to make up for all the Beyond Burgers that they might be eating. Plus, those foods are twice as expensive per pound as organic grass-fed beef. I did the research by looking on walmart.com and found that organic grass-fed beef is cheaper than these plant-based alternatives. And, you know, (laughs) 
I'm forgetting even where else I've been this year because it's been so crazy. I'm about to go to Egypt. I'm, I'm, I go to Denver before I go to Egypt to speak at the Sustainable Beef Roundtable. Wow. And um, I'm seeing all kinds of knee-jerk policies, like in New Zealand, taxing farmers for the livestock emissions, right? New Zealand is grass-based. They don't mm-hmm. do feedlot finishing in New Zealand. It's grass-based. They these these animals are sequestering carbon, but we're only focused on the emissions. And so many farmers are, are either being taxed or they're being incentivized to take their land out of farm production and plant trees, monocrop, non-native trees, uh, not even to graze in the trees, just to plant the trees in order to offset the emissions from their cattle production. It is ridiculous. There's there's weird policy being proposed in Ireland. Got airlines buying farmland, taking it out of food production for the carbon credits. And globally, we've got a huge problem, not with calorie production, but with nutrient production. We need more nutrition in our food system, and that comes from animal source foods. And the action of animals grazing on land actually improves that land. We have studies mm-hmm. showing that you know, there's an economic value to what these animals are doing. They're increasing biodiversity. They're, they're minimizing fire risks. So yeah, you know, if we yeah. pull you know, more animals out of California, we're going to see more wildfires because mm-hmm. they're the ones eating all the kindling that ignites these fires. Uh, so there's just massive, massive problems. And there's massive problems, even with the science that's coming out right now, vilifying meat nutritionally. There's a lot of weird bias going on. There's people hiding evidence. And there's not enough people kind of with a microphone pointing it out. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that just for a minute? Because I know you've you've broken out sort of the flaws of observational studies or um, rather like personal reporting on what I think they call them like surveys, right? So they basically ask people, okay, what what's your general consumption of X, Y, Z? We're not doing double blind um, trials here, right? So walk us through some of the sketchy nutritional research that might be taking place. Yeah, so I mean basically what I have to say about it like in in the, the short answer is that the evidence against meat weak <laughs> the evidence against meat is weak yeah. is incredibly yeah. weak it's shaky science. So what they're doing is they're looking at populations of vegetarians compared to a typical American diet, right? Mm. Your typical vegetarian is much less likely to smoke and drink. They're more likely to do yoga and meditate and shop at health food stores and eat fresh fruits and vegetables and do all those healthy things. And so to compare someone who has that type of a lifestyle to someone who is eating a standard American diet, tailgating every weekend, drinking a six pack of beer every night and happens to eat hot dogs and saying it's the meat that's the problem. Right, right. That's that's what's going on with all these studies. Mm. And so when they've adjusted for all those lifestyle factors and looked at people who shop at health food stores and they compare omnivores to vegetarians, they find no difference at all in health mm. outcomes between a vegetarian and an omnivore who shops at a health food store. Mm. Um, and I would argue that vegetarians actually do consume meat because they're eating eggs and cheese and dairy which are animal source foods. And in my mm-hmm. book, I make the point that there's not much of a difference between eating eggs, dairy, and cheese and eating eggs, dairy, cheese, plus some steak. Like yeah. they're yeah. all animal source foods, very different than a vegan. When they've looked at vegans that shop at health food stores, the ones that actually continue the diet 
beyond three months, which 85% of all people who try a vegan diet quit after three months. But the ones who've actually lived a long time, they've found worse health outcomes in vegans. Yeah. Or like Yoga Girl, like I mentioned earlier, I think she was vegan for a decade, had horrible health outcomes after that. And finally, now her health is reversing because she's introducing animal source foods. So yeah, we'll have to link hers. Diana, this has been incredible. Thank you for coming on our show. I know it's beautiful weather out there. We want you to enjoy your your time up in um, Boston. But yeah, really grateful for your insight and uh, sticking with us for this podcast. Yeah, man, I hope you get some rest from all that travel. And Egypt sounds awesome i hope it's not yeah are you all, excited i hope Have it's you, not all work i am excited i uh it, it it's been a long year with a lot of different travel yeah. and i thought i was going to be taking the fall off to be like a little more strategic and and kind of take a take a, a overall look at everything like i said i started a nonprofit, the global food justice alliance so yeah do I'm you want really, to talk about that oh sure um so the global food justice alliance has its own you know i i'm on Instagram at Sustainable Dish, but then I also have Global Food Justice. It has its own website. And the mission behind that is doctors, dietitians, and other scientists, and then Nick Offerman, who you mentioned was <laughs> the narrator of uh, Sacred Cow, all advocating for access to healthy animal source foods as part of a nutritious, sustainable, ethical, and culturally appropriate diet. Right. And so we really push back against people and and the whole narrative that Mm -hmm. meat is unhealthy. We are going to start getting into also delivering protein to people who need it, working through different organizations to make that happen, both in the U.S. and across the world. So people can learn more and get involved. They can join our Patreon and and all that just by going to globalfoodjustice.org and checking that out. And yeah, so I I am very excited. It's a huge honor, especially the people that I'm going to be on the panel presenting with, Dr. Frank Mitloner, and then um, another expert who was in my film at the University of Florida, and I cannot pronounce his last name, but his first name (laughs) is Gabola. And he is also going to be there with me in Egypt. He is one of the leaders in food equity and making sure that there aren't policies that pull meat away from kids who need it. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that you <clears throat> took such an interest in this. You wrote a book, you did a documentary, and now this nonprofit is like, no, you're really taking action. Education is a beautiful, important step of that. But the fact that you're l- really reaching your arm out and trying to, um, even all this travel, like what a sacrifice that is for you. So thank you for your work, Diana. We, we really are pumped to um, have had you on the show and get to share it. And I really want everyone to, yeah, we're, we're going to send them your way. For and sure. so sustainable dish. That's, that's the handle is, are we on, are we on Twitter? We're all, where are we all on? Um, I Social find media. Twitter is just so argumentative. Uh, yeah. So I, I get pulled into things occasionally on Twitter and it's just like, uh, it's a hard um, space. It's a hard space. Yeah. So Instagram, Global Food Justice is also on TikTok. We really are Got trying it. to reach out to younger people. So, and we're also recruiting young voices to spread this message on TikTok. So, you know, people can uh, contact us if they want to get more involved, if they, if they want to be part of that conversation. And yeah, so globalfoodjustice.org, TikTok, Instagram, at Global Food Justice, and then at Sustainable Dish on Instagram are, are yep. the main. And then That's the Sustainable a- Dish podcast. 
Yes. Right on. That's yes. how you can find Diana. Definitely encourage folks to do it. I'll repeat all this because I do that. But uh, uh, we won't take up any. We won't take any more of your time, Diana. Thank you so much for coming on and have an awesome, awesome day. Have some awesome travels. Yeah. Enjoy Egypt. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And with that, Diana has left the left the chat. Yes. Holy smokes. <laughs> she might be one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. I knew a lot about her and I know that you also know a lot about our guests but I definitely knew more and so I knew that this episode was going to be just phenomenal oh my goodness because she I truly believe she is like one of the most impactful pioneers in this space right now because of her status as a dietitian because of her connection um, in the like regenerative ag world and also because of her voice like she has you know had the privilege of being on joe rogan like she's written this um massive book she's created this documentary that you can find um nick offerman's in it like what she's just she's a powerhouse for this very important message that you and i um talk about often totally so i really you know this episode was fantastic we also kind of covered some of the the not guts, I almost said guts, but like the meat of some of her work, Sacred Cow, in a previous episode of ours mm -hmm. called A Case for Beef, um, which was really a great conversation just between you and I. Mm -hmm. And so today to have sat down with her as the author and have this conversation was super, Outstanding. super awesome honor for us. But also I, I appreciate her level-headed approach to this. Totally. And she gets a lot of backlash, obviously, because she's she's speaking out against a very strong narrative. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that she can kind of, you know, stick her neck out there for it. It takes a fighter to do that kind of stuff. And you Absolutely. can tell that she's just a savage, right? Absolutely. And I mean, she's traveling 11, 12 countries in... You know, I've, ne I've never been to 11, 12 countries in my entire life. So legit. I'd love to hear it. Hey, go find, go find Diana if you want to hear more from her. And I'm guessing that you do. I mean, I do. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find her at Sustainable Dish. That's on Instagram. Mm -hmm. You can find her at Global Food Justice, I'm guessing on Instagram and TikTok. Mm -hmm. You could, if you're you know, a young folk that wants to have a voice there, don't know exactly, you know, I don't know much about TikTok is I guess what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. But you could go do that. You can reach out to her. And uh, I'm guessing they're bringing folks on to promote this movement is, is probably my guess. Yeah. You can also get to their website, globalfoodjustice.org. I'm hyped that she's working with a Bengal mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. I know. I hope she makes it to Cincy. And if she does, we definitely We'll definitely need to connect. connect with her. Yeah, that would be sick. Yeah. That's that's super awesome. So definitely, definitely link up with, with Diana. This uh, what a what an awesome what an awesome episode. Yeah, I'm, any I'm gonna takeaways go back and for to this myself. I was just gonna say any takeaways for you personally. There's a lot of stuff that I love. I mean, geez, having worms in her kitchen just shows the dedication to something like this back in college oh mean? my gosh mm -hmm. uh, crazy the the stuff that that i really loved learning about was the very i love how she broke down the differences between like eating animal-based protein versus eating from like a caloric point of view yeah and th not not only to mention that there's there's vitamins and nutrients that are that are missing mm -hmm. but if we're looking at just purely protein right and it is a fascinating thing when you think about it that we're constantly, like constantly, constantly, constantly telling people like, don't eat meat, it's not good for you. And then everyone's super unhealthy and overweight. Mm -hmm. It's like, shouldn't shouldn't the world be getting healthier? Or the interesting thing is too, like if you look at the USDA guidelines, it says lean meat only and it has a strong preference towards poultry and fish. But mm -hmm. basically red meat, it says reduce your your intake of red meat. 
specifically, not just like processed meats, which even the term processed meats I have an issue with mm-hmm. because I don't have an issue with processing of food for its uh, end preservation, totally. which is exactly what processed meats are. Totally. Um, but the fact that we are demonizing red meat specifically, which is typically from a ruminant animal, makes zero sense because the way that, like, yeah. I think it's like 97% of pork and chicken produced in the U.S. is through a CAFO, a centralized feeding operation, yeah. right? And so that meat is going to be far more damaging to the environment and far less nutrient-dense than the grass-fed or even grain-finished beef that you can get at the grocery store and she outlines that beautifully in her book and in their documentary Mm. that was one of my biggest takeaways overall from diana's work is that like hey let's stop um demonizing the ruminants who are our answer to sequestering carbon our answer to bringing down some of those greenhouse gases that are too um concentrated in the atmosphere and let's actually look at hey is chicken the cleaner meat like we've been sold and it's not Mm. and now can we have beautiful amazing chicken i mean we talked to paul Paul, he raises awesome chicken yes we can um actually chicken should be more expensive than beef there's a lot of reasons why we'll actually talk about that on a future episode but yeah our whole our whole assumption around meat and meat intake as a society is whacked and so it's always really nice to hear someone break down the science for us because it does feel like we have to be kind of on the defense. Like mm-hmm. if you're a meat eater, you kind of, you, you have to like have a little bit of that built in. So yeah, all that to say, I loved sitting down with Diana. I hope it's the first time of Maybe, several. Yeah. yeah. Go, go hit up Diana again, Sustainable Dish, Global Food Justice. She's got TikTok, Instagram, website. Get after it. She's the bomb. She's got a book called Sacred Cow. Yep. <clears throat> Get the book. Read the book. If you don't like to read, well, one, I think you should you should like to read. But if you don't like to read, it's fine. Watch the documentary. Watch, watch the documentary. Boom. She's got you covered. Yeah, she does. Documentary is outstanding. It is. I really enjoyed it and definitely would recommend it. It's on Netflix. I don't remember where we saw it. Um, just a simple Google search will tell you. Yeah. We'll Sacred link Cow, it in the show notes. Outstanding. Too. So so good, and um, yeah, really really well done. Definitely definitely go watch. Definitely go watch that. You can also find Diana on her podcast, a Sustainable Dish. Mm-hmm, Don't yeah. forget to mention that she's got she's cranking them out. So it's a great show. Go go check that out. She's talking to people about you know, eating disorders and and new, new proper nourishment and breaking stigmas. I mean, stuff that you guys are talking about is freaking legit. I love to hear it. If for some reason during this episode you thought, you know, I want to hear more from Joey. Why do you always pose it like that? Like it's a negative. You just don't, I don't believe. I don't know. Maybe it's funny. I don't know. Anyways, if you <laughs> if you want to hear from me, you can find me. I'm on Instagram. I run. I drink coffee. I'm about to start hunting. Hunting is coming. Mm-hmm. Like one week. And we're gonna do our best to take everybody on the hunting journey. I got what's I got a phone mount for my bow. Mm-hmm. Now, when you see a deer and this is your first year bow hunting, are you actually going to have like the mental capacity to hit record? That's future Joey's problem. <laughs> Current Joey says yes. Future Joey might. We'll you know, see. Th- there's different versions of yourself in different scenarios, That's right? That's true. When you're in that hunting, like, got to make it happen mode in that, like in that it's zone. Instinctual. It's different, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I've never experienced it. But, but. You know, the more you do it, the more comfortable, the more used to it do you get. And I'm hoping. How, what year is this for you hunting? Uh, th- uh, this will be my 13th year. Wow. 
That's cool. 13, 13. Well, 13 for deer. But 13 like, independently sitting thir- in a stand. In a deer stand. Okay. 13 in a deer stand, yeah. Mm-hmm. Overall, you know, sort of hunting miles 12, so, you know, more than that. Yeah. Anyways. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Joey Hazelmar. You can find Liz, someone you might want to actually hear from, right? Again, we're, we're still with the jokes. You can find Elizabeth. You can find Liz at Liz Hazelmeyer. If you want to learn more from Homegrown, we've got a Homegrown Instagram. We've got a website. Homegrown is at Homegrown Education. That's actually Homegrown underscore education. Yes, it is. I thought I was going to forget, and you were wrong. <laughs> um, the website is at Homegrown. No. The website is www.homegrowneducation.org. I don't know what's going on, man. I've said this so many times. Maybe I need to write it down. Find us on there. We've got we got resources for for you for your kids yep. to get in the game to to learn about this stuff. If this if this episode coming from Diana was just too much heat, if you felt like you had to get out of the kitchen because it was too hot, we've got some things to kind of get you in the game. We've got children's nutrition curriculum to get your kids in the game. We've got the real food guide for adults that want to kind of kick their real food journey off. Or maybe it's a refresher because you're in the game. Or maybe mm-hmm. it's something that you just want a reference guide. You want to sharpen the, you know, sharpen, sharpen up a little. Real food guide, outstanding digital resource for you to understand more about sourcing, you know, what real food and nourishment looks like, everything from you know, dairy to proteins to, to fermentings etc so yep. get, get after that we got the, we got what's for dinner outstanding book highly recommend it's a tool to kind of help establish rhythms rhythms that you can lean into to keep your you and your family nourished fed cooking dinner i, I mean it, the the meaning the value is in the name what's for dinner mm-hmm. that's a problem if it's not a problem in your family i'm surprised yeah problem let's not call it a problem if it's not a challenge yeah every day yeah. that you're dealing with someone walks in the door wife comes home husband comes home what's for dinner everyone's asking it and uh we want to help you kind of make that happen in a nourishing kind of real holistic way get what's for dinner you can get that in digital or physical form you find that on the website www.homegrowneducation.org find it there it's awesome good stuff we just dropped the raw dairy guide. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're listening to this, it will have been dropped for a while. For about a week. Yeah, so we dropped a, it's a roughly 20-page PDF, basically full text every page. Goes through the history of pasteurization. You know, it's named after the man, Louis Pasteur. So we got to talk about him. We talk about homogenization, the varying levels of processing that we do to our milk currently. And then kind of the um, just background of you know how we've been consuming dairy since we started milking whatever animal Mm -hmm. um and so yeah it's not meant to tell you what to do it's meant to lay out information in a, a way that's um allows you to make the decision and there's sourcing information you know state by state if you're talking about u.s specifically there's also links to resources for outside of the u.s the the whole back page is just organizations pages and books you can go read for further research it's really and it's for free Mm -hmm. because 
you know, raw dairy is so confusing. If you go to Google it, the only thing you're going to find is, hey, it can contain harmful bacteria. It will kill you. And for me, that answer wasn't good enough. That's not that's not reflective of the six and a half years that we've been consuming raw dairy. So something's missing in the dissemination of of information around dairy. And I wanted to bridge that gap. And I didn't feel like I needed to be the gatekeeper to that info. I were giving it away for free for that very reason. So so raw dairy guide. Yeah. For free. For free. Homegrowneducation.org. We've also got a sourdough guide on there. Similar vibe. Yeah. Right, go get that. It's free. And um, man, until next time. That's a wrap.